Edu. I mean, Edu. that's kind of funny. Edu. Oh, you could end by that. I bid you icscanada.edu. <laughs> <laughs>
and my entire leg will suddenly go numb. I never asked for this. What did I do to deserve this? Maybe the International Olympic Committee will get on board with this. My idea will totally solve the blood doping dilemma. No blood, no unfair advantages. Russia would be able to participate again. If we were without blood, we'd prevent all shark attacks. Sharks wouldn't be attracted to us if they can't smell our blood. I'm saving lives here. And yes, everything I know about sharks is based off what I saw in Pixar's Finding Nemo. It really comes down to this. How many good times have you had where there was blood involved? Now how many bad times have you had where there was blood involved? Coincidence? I think not. Uh, for our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance and discerning moments of judgment as a community. We're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their works and lives. Today we're joined once again by Gideon Strauss. Gideon hails from South Africa and returns there every summer. He boasts an ongoing love for the country and concern for the complex politics of both apartheid and post-apartheid South Africa. We're looking forward to hearing about his first-hand experiences in these contexts. So, welcome, Gideon. It's great to be here. Uh, so, you were raised in apartheid South Africa. To simply exist in such a time and place means that so much of your life is impacted by the politics of the day. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a young man in such a turbulent political climate? Yeah, gladly. So, I guess... You are asking me about being a young man, so mm -hmm. I will take that as my teens. And so during the time that I was a teenager in South Africa, so I turned, would have turned 13 around 1980. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the lived experience of a white male in the South African context during the 1980s, actually the 1970s and the 1980s, was that you were required to do military service. So there was universal conscription, military conscription, for white men uh, between the ages, uh, if I remember correctly, of 12 and 45. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in there, if you were racially designated in that country by law as white and you were male, then you had to do four years of military service. And so that's part of the big backdrop of of the life of any young white South African in that yeah. context. Um, during the 1980s, part of what that meant was a very high level of directly violent engagement with your fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. So the decade of the 1980s was the decade during which, uh, for most of, of that time, the prime minister in South Africa was, uh, and then later president, but basically the top guy mm -hmm. in the government, was someone called P.W. Boerter. And Boerter had a vision of South African politics uh, within the broad context of the Cold War, the 1980s era, uh, where you would have had America, specifically under Ronald Reagan, juxtaposed against the Soviet Union uh, under a variety of people. And and that shaped for Buerta also his understanding of South African politics and for the white minority government of that country as being allied against the 
red danger in my mother tongue Afrikaans, die rooi gevaar. So it was a, um, a mythology of the politics of the time as being the white minority over and against the black majority in the country as part of a Cold War mythology of uh, communist and anti-communist forces. And so I was in that context uh, raised to see myself as a soldier in a war uh, between races and between these large international blocks of communism and anti-communism. And so to... Um, and it was a highly a highly militarized experience we did in my high school, as in every other white high school in the country, we did military exercises on Fridays. So we wore uniforms, like not just school uniforms, but soldiers' uniforms. We learned how to shoot, we marched, we uh, we had a military band. Um, and so your your whole experience as a young man in the setting of the 1980s was shaped by that militarized experience. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, for uh, the the conflict between the government, uh, which tried to maintain white rule in one way or another, and opposition forces to that, so the liberation movements, specifically movements that sought to liberate the oppressed majority of non-white people in the country from a white rule, um, intensified. It intensified both in terms of um, organized protests within the country and in terms of an actual uh, war of liberation waged by uh, the armed wings of the liberation movements against the military of the country at that time. And so this heightened conflict also included a heightened level of state violence against those who sought to change the political arrangements. That state violence meant, uh, during the course of the 1980s, a replacement of the police force by the army in uh, suppressing uh, efforts to uh, protest against the government inside the country and not just at its borders. So that meant uh, a militarized experience of uh, the conflict in South Africa, not just for people like me, so white men, mm-hmm. but really for everyone in the country. So you'd have had on the television news daily uh, images of armed conflict between the apartheid army and the police force of the apartheid government over and against mostly um, organized young people uh, in various protest actions, and that would, you know, almost always escalate into violence. The liberation movements and the protest movements in South Africa had disagreements amongst themselves as to how the process of liberation should be accomplished. At the at that time in the 1980s, the primary organized uh, movement of liberation was the African National Congress, which was founded in 1912. The African National Congress from 1912 until 1961 had a uh, explicitly Gandhian kind of position of nonviolent uh, resistance. But in 1961, the youth wing of the African National Congress, specifically under Nelson Mandela and others, 
uh, persuaded the movement as a whole that that policy of nonviolent resistance had failed. And they made that case. There's a, there's a magnificent statement in court by Nelson Mandela arguing the case that the, the state had used a violent means of terror to retain its control, the white state, to retain its control over the mass of people in the country, that decades of efforts uh, at dialogue uh, between the African National Congress and other liberation movements with the government had failed, that the policy of nonviolent resistance had failed. And so in 1961, the African National Congress established an armed wing called Mkumtawe Siswe, the Spear of the Nation, and, in, and started engaging in an armed resistance. Um, the, and, and, and very rapidly was banned. So, um, the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist uh, Congress and their armed wings were illegal organizations within the South African context by the 1980s, had been for two decades. But during the 1980s, a new movement emerged inside South Africa that brought together a wide variety of um, internal sort of civil society organizations into what was called the United Democratic Front or the UDF. The key figureheads and actually charismatic leaders within the UDF were church folks. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu from the Anglican Church, mm -hmm. Alan Busak, who was a Reformed Church pastor and theologian, um, and, and others, but those were two key figures, and they made fresh arguments for nonviolent uh, protest and resistance. So there was a conflict between the uh, what was known as the sort of like the internal movement of the UDF, the United Democratic Front, and the external liberation movement, specifically the African National Congress, in, in terms of an approach to that. So that's part of the context. So um, a conflict between enemies. So I, I, you know, I was enculturated by my school, by my church, by my family. Um, with the notion that the key conflict in the country was the racial conflict, um, that that was further problematized by it being a ideological conflict between capitalists and communists, and that my obligation was to be a soldier in that conflict. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the background within which I uh, found myself to be a young man. <laughs> Did you? either have a choice to, to be in the military or no choice? And if if so, then did you manage to get out of military service? Mm -hmm. So I'll background my, my answer to that by a little bit of my own narrative. So when I was in my late childhood, so around the age of 10, um, I came to the conviction, imagined through an imaginative experience, came to the conviction that the racism with which I'd grown up was wrong. Mm -hmm. morally wrong. Uh, it was through reading a novel, a young adult novel by Ursula Le Guin called mm -hmm. The Word for World is Forest. Reading that novel overturned my, my moral imagination and changed me from being a racist to not wanting to be a racist at, in my head. Now, as I tell people, it took me easily another decade and a half for that intellectual conviction to become something visceral, so viscerally not be racist. But that posed me with a challenge, right? So here I am, I'm a 10-year-old kid, 
Um, I'm persuaded that the world in which I live is uh, deeply wrong, is upside down, uh, but I don't have an alternative perspective on like, you know, now what do I, how do I make sense of this lived experience? And so that was the quest of my teens, to figure out how I make sense of the world in which I live. That resulted during my teens in my becoming um, um, intellectually an anarchist and a pacifist. Mm-hmm. Then in my mid-teens, I converted to Christ. Uh, so that this was like a, a standard issue evangelical conversion. I read the Gospels. I gave my heart to Jesus in response to reading the Gospels. Now I'm a Christian, and and now I have to make sense of all of this. So I grew up thinking that the religion with which I was raised was Christianity. I would now say that it wasn't. It was just racism. Um, and so becoming a Christian posed me with, a, with a, a big challenge. So does this require of me to return to that with which I was raised? Clearly that's not something I wanted to do. Can you or can you not be a pacifist if you're a Christian? Can you can you not be an anarchist if you're a Christian? What does what does Jesus require if you politically if the politics of your time is is a structured racism? And so the the struggle of trying to figure out how to live in the place that I grew up and to follow Jesus meant that for for the remainder of my teens and my twenties that was the big thing to try and figure out how to be a citizen of South Africa and how to be a follower of Jesus and what the relationship between those two things were. Existentially for me, that question found its its expression in trying to figure out what to do with my legal obligation to do military service in service of the apartheid state. I decided already before I was a Christian uh, that I would not do military service in service of the apartheid state and so I had to figure out what what that meant for Christianity for my Christianity and so I went on a quest my response to all possible life quandaries is to try and find a book that addresses it (laughs) Um, and so I found a series of books by by Christians addressing these issues Um, specifically um, I read books by Ron Sider Um, he wrote this great a book that was a big bestseller in the 80s called uh, Rich Christians in a, in a World of Poverty, I think. World of Hunger, Rich Christians in a World of Hunger. But he also wrote explicitly in favor of a pacifist understanding of following Jesus, of Christian discipleship. And then I read a book by um, John Howard Yoder called The Politics of Jesus, in which he made a kind of like a Barthian Mennonite argument for a, a Christian politics that's pacifist. So for me in my late teens and early 20s, that became the, the theological framework in which I sought to follow Jesus as a citizen of South Africa. And so I accepted a kind of Christian pacifism, a kind of an Anabaptist Christianity, if you will, as my way of figuring out a resistance policy, politics from a Christian perspective. And so I refused to do military service. What that meant in South Africa under South African law in the 1980s was that you had to appear before a military court um, and the military court then uh, tried to discern whether your 
refusal to do military service, uh, you know, what, what constituted it. The legislation at the time said that if you were a religious pacifist, um, you could refuse to do military service. And you could do it in uh, uh, two different ways. You could say, my religious convictions, they didn't have to be Christian religious convictions, but my religious convictions uh, do not allow me to bear arms. And then you could do military service, but as, say, a medic, and not bear arms yourself. Um, in that case, you then did the normal four years of military service. Now, for most people, what military service looked like was two continuous years of military service, and then bits and pieces until they were in their 40s. So a weekend here, a weekend there, a month here, a month there, depending on what they did as soldiers. Uh, if you wanted to finish it all in four years, you became an officer and, and did the four years and then you were done. So if you were that first category of objector who said, I can, I can be in the, in the army, but I can't myself bear arms, you just did a full four-year stretch and you did it as a non-arms-bearing member of the military forces. If you were in a second category where you said, I can't be in the army, I won't be in the army, then you did a six-year period of service and you did it in some part of the government as a, uh, you did what the, what the act called community service. If you refused to be party to the government itself, then you just went to prison for six years. And so I fell in that second category where I said I was willing to work in the government, but I was not willing to be part of the army. And so I was sentenced to a six-year community service sentence, and I worked in the Department of Labor. And so I did that shortly. I, I did that a year and a bit after I finished high school. So I, I applied to be recognized as a religious objector against military service. I appeared before the court. They classified me in the second grouping after a hearing. And so I started doing uh, community service in May of 1986. Um, and that's what I did you know, with my day. I mm -hmm. worked in a government office from May 86 until um, February of 1990 when the government in the process of negotiations towards a new democracy, a non-racial democracy, uh, abolished um, uh, conscription. And then they basically sent all the soldiers home and then shortly after they sent everybody else home. Hmm. So you were a pacifist at this point. Mm -hmm. um, has your thinking developed at all in terms of uh, violent or non-violent resistance? Uh, it, it changed back then. Okay. So, so I started doing um, community service in 1986. And 1986, uh, over the course of the 1980s, the level of intensity of struggle between the liberation forces and the government intensified. And that, among other things, meant that the government became all the more repressive in a wide variety of ways. More people were... Um, taken into custody by the police for questioning without uh, court hearings. The questioning, it became very evident that torture was being used by the state mm -hmm. to a far greater extent. Kids were killed on the streets to a far greater extent by soldiers and, and police officers. And so, through the course of the late 80s, 
everybody became aware of the fact that that the the level of repression by the government was just intensifying all the time in my own thinking i became so two things happened in my own thinking from 86 to 89 the one was i became ever more disillusioned with the efficacy efficacy so one one thing that happened is i became ever more disillusioned with the efficacy of nonviolent resistance against this particularly oppressive government and so my disillusionment with the achievement my impatience with the accomplishment of change through nonviolent resistance intensified and i remember i'm at that time in my late teens early 20s i'm an impatient young man so this is not just all you know sort of like virtuous reasoning this is also highly emotional response to mm-hmm. to this experience but basically i'm going no um emotionally i'm not persuaded intellectually i'm not persuaded that my own pacifism is adequate to the crisis of the moment and i'm starting to question it but now i'm deeply doctrinally persuaded of my own christian pacifism right and so i'm struggling with it that's the one uh, problem that i'm struggling with at that time the other problem that i'm struggling with at that time is the the question of so what happens if we win right mm-hmm. so the question of okay so i'm part of the movement against apartheid what if apartheid does come to an end then people like me would have to take shared responsibility for a future post-apartheid government but that means that we'd have to take responsibility for policing we would have to take responsibility for national defense i don't have a theology for that mm-hmm. i only have a resistance theology i only have a counter theology to to the state right so those two things became huge problems for me the the historical inefficacy of nonviolent resistance efforts under non-democratic circumstances so the only in my opinion at that time the only nonviolent movements that succeeded succeeded within the context of constitutional democracies hmm. um nonviolent change was not um successful in the context of a non-democratic uh, regime and on the other hand feeling that my own theology was inadequately constructive politically speaking and so i needed to find a new theology for you know f- for for those concerns so i started reading like who are the theologians or the christian thinkers who address uh the possibility of armed resistance against a non-democratic government and who are the christian thinkers who talk about a constructive politics where you share responsibility either as a citizen or a, as a, a part of the government and thus my discovery of calvinism <laughs> so um the turn for me came in discovering a little book by a dutch economist by the name of bob goudswart who wrote this little book called Idols of Our Time sometime in the 1980s at least it came out in English sometime in the 1980s and I think I read it around 1986 uh when you know um and I was really impressed with his analysis of political movements as idolatries so he drew a uh, correlation between ideology and idolatry 
And one of the chapters was on Afrikaner nationalism, the idolatry or ideology with which I grew up. And I found the analysis so persuasive. It was kind of an Augustinian analysis that argued that if our ultimate love is not the love of God, and if that love of God does not shape our politics, then our politics of necessity is idolatrous. Um, and it can be idolatrous in a variety of ways, depending on what the deep commitments are that replace the love of God. And so race or nation in the case of nationalism. Um, and I loved Gautwa's stuff, and, but it also became in the final chapter of that book, the final chapter of the book was kind of like a little bit of a constructive philosophy, Christian philosophy of political life, which I really liked. And so I started exploring the thread, like where does this Gautwa guy get his stuff from? And so to discover that he is, you know, trained by this guy called Hermann Doeviert. And Doeviert is influenced by this guy called Abraham Kaper. And Abraham Kaper is influenced by this guy called John Calvin. And John Calvin is influenced by this guy called Augustine of Hippo. And so in 1989, when I was becoming really disillusioned with my own contribution to the struggle against apartheid, I started digging, again, my response is to read books, right? So mm -hmm. I started digging in that tradition. So I started with Gautzwart, read back into Duevier, read back into Kaper, read back into Calvin, specifically read um, the final part of Calvin's Institutes on Civil Government. From there, jumped to the way in which the next generation of Calvinists in the 16th and 17th century picked up that political theology in Scotland and in France. So there was a statement against tyranny by the French Huguenots, which mm. is a key document. In, it's one of the earliest Christian arguments for an armed resistance against an oppressive regime. And then um, I want to say John Rutherford wrote a book called Lex Rex, which is the law is king, the king is not the law in which he created the far more substantial Calvinist political theology of resistance against an illegitimate uh, rule. And so by the end of 1989, having done this digging into Calvinism, I decided that politically I was no longer an Anabaptist, I was a, a Calvinist. Um, um, I had to think through whether I was a Calvinist in other ways, mm -hmm. right? So my Calvinism is not the kind of Calvinism that starts with like the doctrines of grace, although for me, yay, the doctrines of grace, but um, rather one that was political. And so by the end of 1989, I had persuaded myself that I was now no longer a pacifist, but that I believed not only in a just war doctrine, but in a just resistance doctrine mm. in the style of the Huguenots. And so then, you know, for me, then the religious change had occurred. So by December of 1989, my question was, now how do I do this? Because I can no longer in good conscience do community service. Um, because I'm no longer a religious pacifist. And so for me, it then became a practical question of, so how do I engage in the armed struggle effectively? And I had just come to that persuasion when 1990 came around, the Berlin Wall had just fallen, uh, the Cold War had come to an end, so to speak. And the government in South Africa decided and announced that it was going to engage in negotiations with the anti-apartheid movements. And Nelson Mandela was released from prison. The African National Congress was unbanned, as was the Pan-Africanist Congress. All the political prisoners over the course of the beginning two months of, of 1990 were released um, 
my community service came to an end and then the, like you know the world changed for me which meant among other things that i didn't have to figure out a way how to join the armed resistance and that brings us to our final segment what's your pleasure this is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun the movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Theron, what's your pleasure? So, over the past weekend, I went down to the Word on the Street Festival, which is like a book and magazine, like outdoor festival uh, on the street. It's, uh, it's kind of by the Toronto Carpet Factory. Um, it was really cool. There's just everyone has a bunch of tents. It's all some a uh, lot of like publishers and bookstores each have their own tents selling books and magazines and subscriptions and all kinds of stuff. So that was very interesting. And it's right on the water, so you can kind of walk around the parks and stuff too. Um, and it was very hot that day. It was like 30 degrees, so like it was nice to be outside and, and walking around and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I haven't gotten tired of, of looking and reading books yet. So, Well, hopefully that continues for as long as possible <laughs> for the rest of your life. Fingers crossed. Yep. Uh, my pleasure has been the study music of mine for the last uh, five months, mm -hmm. um, which is a series of albums, uh, instrumental albums, uh, by the composer and pianist Ludovico Ainodi. Um, and they are, there are seven days walking. So each day is a variation on the first day. And uh, the each day also has an entire album. So it's plenty of um, listening for me while I'm reading because I have a difficult time uh, absorbing information without uh, headphones in. Mm -hmm. um, so Ludovico has been um, a breath of fresh air for me. What kind of music is it? Uh, it's most. It's pretty like um, it's mostly piano, piano driven for sure. Uh, in the last album, the seventh day, the, it's only piano. Um, mm. And uh, it's it, it would fall like similar to like um, Max Richter, mm. um, uh, uh, Dustin O'Halloran. Do you uh, uh, who's another one? Um, Nils Fromm. Okay, but it's all instrumental. It's then. all instrumental, and yeah. all these people that I just named are like they're yeah. all instrumental composers. So cool. Yeah. I'll check it out. That's it for our show this week. Uh, we hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of our episodes this semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find my co-host as at Mark Standish, and you can also follow ICS at 
I-N-S-C-H-R. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.